1: Log Talk Radio.
2: for you tonight. Tonight, Scott's going to be a little bit late. He's still out on that combat tracking class. From what I understand, it's a pretty good setup, and he'll be back pretty quick. What we need to do tonight is talk about putting everything together. We've sat down, and we've learned new skills. We've acquired knowledge. We've acquired supplies. We've acquired tools. We have all sorts of good things. But we have to wonder what we can make with these things as we put them together. We can make a, a easy-to-get-by sort of life, obviously, better than some of our compatriots who didn't take the time to prepare. But what do we want to get out of all of this? What we want from it is a return to good life. But we need to take those skills and put them all together and do the best we can to bring things back to what we would consider normal. One thing that we don't talk too often about is getting our friends involved in our preparations. You have to put together with your friends form an amalgam, a community. I hesitate to call it a team because it lies small and very discrete tasks put together. We want to build a community, a large community of people. So we need to have our neighbors join with us and us join with them, sharing common values, goals, and aspirations to succeed. Are you working with your neighbor who raises chickens? You're a heck of a corn farmer, but you're not too much on livestock. Are you feeding his chickens and swapping for eggs? Is he looking out for that west side of your property that he adjoins? What have you done to keep in touch with him so that he can warn you when something's going on or call you when he needs assistance? How are you communicating with him? I hate to think you're ringing a dinner bell out back. How many of you got a field phone strung to your neighbor's place? 62 bucks at one of them surplus stores. get you a couple of field phones. Now 30, 40 bucks gets you a couple of hundred yards of wire. Boom, you're hooked in. You got communication. You got two families working together. You got a community. Wire into the next guy down, you're doing a little bit better. He's got a milk cow, and he's got some hay pasture out there. But uh, he could sure use some some corn to increase bossy's production a little bit. Maybe a little labor, too. You have to put them all together. But what did you put together with your neighbors as far as your preparations? Did you plan on each specializing in some discrete task of it? survival and return to civilization civilization machine or have you just sat back and not talked with him a whole lot. That's something you need to get involved with. You need to be talking with those neighbors. You need to plan together. You need to coordinate your efforts. You need to be able to be mutually supporting to each other in all kinds of ways. You got a passel of kids, He's got a passel of crops. Well, you need to be providing some labor if you want to eat regular. Maybe he prepped a little better than you and got a wider variety of seed. What have you got to offer so you can make the team work and everybody can get a little better variety of food? If you haven't coordinated your preps, if you haven't sat down and and pre-planned how you're going to deal with emergencies and catastrophes, Now's the time to do so. Maybe you don't have space to store all of your stuff. Your garage is instantly turned into a solid block full of stored buckets of cracked wheat, corn, and beans. And a bunch of powdered milk to where you can't get in there and get to a screwdriver to fix a loose door hinge. Well, if he's got a little extra basement space, maybe you need to be swapping out some space. But that means you need to sit down and talk with him about your plan. And is your neighbor someone you can talk to that plan about? Have you cultivated his friendship and his trust? Because friendship and trust go a long, long way. Friendship and trust can gain you access to his goods when you're really hurt. (laughs) And what will you do with the people that wander by? Obviously, we can't sit there and do harm to people who are just trying to pass through and get to somewhere where their preps may be or where they have family they can depend on. What have you done to prepare for charitable giving? I'd hate to think that we would be so cold and callous that we can't give someone a meal and hurry them on down the road. Admittedly, it's not much, but you can't be turning people away just because. Sure, there can be a risk You have to plan for it So when the guy you've got working up there in the barn Sees those strangers coming down the road He can get on that field phone and let everybody know Hey, we got somebody coming, y'all get ready And one of you goes down to the gate Says, well friend, I can't feed you Here's some beans, here's a gallon of water you head on down the road a ways and God bless you. Maybe it's not as friendly as it could be, but it's a whole lot better than sitting there and being ugly and turning people away. I ain't going to claim to be the best church-going Christian man in the world, but even I can't turn away a little kid that's starving. Maybe I can't keep them on and feed them, but I'll give them something and send them on their way happy. You and your neighbors need to coordinate these things. Maybe you coordinate a place far away where you keep some food. Maybe a local church wants to open their doors. Fine, you can contribute a little bit there. You can go out to the end of the road and say, Well, neighbor, I can't help you out, but you go down that church two miles down the road on the right, and they'll feed you and give you a place to sleep for tonight." Those are things that you need to work out in your community. What have you put together with your survival hearts? What kind of a survival machine have you made? How much can you depend on them? You need to work that dependence. You need to be trusting. You need to be able to trust all of the people in your survival machine. You need to educate them, do everything you can to bring them along to a good way of thinking, taking care of each other, looking out for what's going on. See, you can't keep enough stuff around your house and secure it and grow yourself food and still be able to survive. If you got to sit out there and pull a guard trick every night for eight or nine hours, you're not going to have a whole heck of a lot of energy to be out in the garden for eight hours the next day. Weeding and hoeing, which is hard work. It's a little bit more involved than watching an episode of Liberty Garden on on PBS on Sunday morning. You need a big team, people who can look out for each other, people who can use their special skills. So you put them 16-year-old kids out there at night keeping an eye on things, shall we say securing the perimeter, looking out for what's going on in your place and the neighbor's place so you can rest up and get something done during the day if you got a family of six you can't do anything because you don't have enough people to stand guard and do the work that's necessary to feed six people can't do it if you got a dozen people then you can stand guard and secure your belongings in your area and maybe one or two other houses if they're very close. And a bunch of you can get together and grow a really big garden, put together a survival machine. And the people relationships that you build are an integral part of that survival machine. You can try to head for the hills and live off the land. It's not going to work. That game will be gone, and it will be gone fast. That's why people took up farming and ranching, Because nature can only produce so much. You need to produce the extra. And you need to have a well-oiled, well-rehearsed survival machine to do it. When I was a youngster, we had a community garden with three families that lived around our house. We tilled up three acres in the back and we all planted it. In the first couple of years, we were kind of rough. Because we all tried to grow our favorite stuff. It didn't always work. I could grow the daylights out of tomatoes. My neighbor, he couldn't do so good on tomatoes, but he seemed to do okay with potatoes. We got smart. He grew potatoes, I grew tomatoes. And we swapped off for what we needed. I found out how to preserve them potatoes. Taught his daughters how to do some canning. We all learned to do our part in this little machine. And that community garden stayed together for a long time. It saved all of us a lot of money on our food. Those weren't even hard times. But we learned some important social skills, how to get along with people, how to negotiate with people to get through day-to-day life, how to specialize and get the most out of people and get the best out of ourselves looking out for each other. You need to have that well-oiled people machine in your survival battery. It's worth almost as much as a tractor, Maybe a good bit more. I'll guarantee if you don't have that well-oiled people machinery, it's not going to happen. You need to have skills to bring to the group. Maybe you can shoot. That's fine. You can teach the rest. But you need to do that before times get rough. Maybe you know how to garden well. Maybe you're a successful truck farmer. You need to teach your neighbors how to how those skills apply and make it work and you need to do it before everything falls apart you need to have that well-oiled survival machine of people out there each part intermeshed working with each other putting it all together your skills at blacksmithing your neighbor's wife's skills at weaving you might just be able to contribute enough to keep things going for a couple of families you can learn to trade some of that skilled labor for food and you might not have to work quite as hard out in your own garden but you can't do it if you don't have a civilization in society because if you're hiding out on your farm staying away from everybody you don't get many customers coming in standing at the gate with a shotgun every time somebody comes driving by that doesn't entice customers real well either. The idea is to have a survival machine, not turn into some kind of 17th century survival idiot scraping by, barely feeding a wife and kids. Got to look out for each other. What do you know about medicine? Oh, your wife's a... Uh, A nurse, well, that's a good thing. She's got some valuable skills to trade. But she doesn't have any supplies to make it work. That doesn't help out too much. So you need to prepare for that. And she needs to expand her skills. And she needs to be available to more than just your family. She needs to be able to treat those injuries that happen when people are working hard. I don't know if any of you all have ever clipped yourself with a hatchet yet but it's going to happen if there isn't somebody out there that knows enough to put it all back together you can end up in pretty bad shape a broken leg ceases to be a wheelchair bound or crutch hobbling inconvenience and becomes a fatal injury if there's no one there to help tend it treat it right so it can heal properly do you have those skills does your neighbor have those skills If you don't, maybe you need to learn them or recruit somebody that does and have them teach you the skills. If you're the canon wizard of the world, that's a good thing. Teach your neighbors how to do it. And you be the canon wizard of the world ready to teach and help everybody else. And they'll come together to help you. Put a roof back on your house, catch your stray cow that got loose, We'll round up some feral hogs to fatten up to eat. But you have to have people. You have to be working together. It has to be a team. And the team only works if you're well-rehearsed, well-drilled, and real well-trained. You've got to put it together. Scouts out there right now at that that tracking class learning how to look for signs, See who's been snooping around where. Figure out how many people been snooping around. He's learning that skill. Do you think he's not going to share it with his neighbors that he's teamed with in order to have a little bit better, safer community? If you had taken that class, you'd have the skills to detect people snooping around your place. Or maybe figure out where those feral hogs are hanging out so he can trap you one or two to fatten up to eat this fall. improve your skills do you know how to convert your modern electronic ignition vehicle back to working with a mechanical electric ignition you know how to stick a old-fashioned setup points and distributor in a vehicle make a run you can convert your computerized car back if you have the skills and you can easily obtain them Do you know how to weld Learn how to weld. Do you know how to blacksmith? Do you know how to do machine work? Can you fix guns? Can you fix pots and pans? I've got a giant cauldron out in front of my house. It's in real nice shape except for one little crack in it. Makes it totally useless. It would be great for scalding a hog if I needed to. I didn't have the skills to make it right. I got a neighbor that knows how to fix those things. And between the two of us, we made a good scalding pot. It's pretty handy. And for now, it makes a nice decoration around Halloween. We can get some witches standing around it, stirring up a cauldron of brew, scared of little kids. But because he had the skills to fix that cauldron, that pot, we've got a very valuable piece of equipment. And having something big enough to boil 50 gallons of water in can be pretty darn handy. Especially if you got a hog to scald or you got a bunch of cannon to put up. I can put that over a big open fire and we got a good source of a good scalding hot boiling water. Because my neighbor took the trouble to learn the skills. By the way, a fella that fixes pots called a tinker. A tinkering ain't quite useless. Like I said last week, When you were a kid, your daddy told you to go out and make yourself useful. I'm telling you, you need to get out and make yourself useful and make your community useful, too. If you have anything you'd like to call in, some skills you have that think that can be passed, things that you think are important, that people need to know, things that they can study up and prepare on, go ahead and dial us up, 347 308-8790. Battle Road paid the bill. We got 49 lines free just waiting for you to dial in and talk. Or you can sit here to good old monotonous me all night telling you how to build a well-oiled people machine, a survival community, a not scraping by community, but a living large community. People helping each other, prospering and growing. People who have enough excess that they can take care of strangers when they come by. People who have enough excess time that they can sit back and play a banjo and dance with their friends and sing. Have a good time. People that have enough leisure time they could actually sit down and make some beer. Or maybe something a little more potent. Those are all skills that you need to make. Skills you need to develop. How are you going to make pickles if you ain't got vinegar? Do you know how to make vinegar? Maybe you ought to learn. Use those apples out in the back lot for something besides decoration. Because I'll guarantee most of them will spoil before you can eat them. And all the art of good, easy living is learning how to make a profit out of something that would go to waste. So if you got a way to make vinegar out of them, or you got a way to dry them and save them for when they're a little sparse on the tree, then you got a skill. And it's a skill you can trade with your neighbors. What have you done to work with those neighbors? You help him tend that orchard? You go out and help him pick those apples so he can get them in and get them sold? Help him out a little bit so that maybe he'll feel a little bit beholden to you when times are tight? Maybe you ain't got a couple of thousand dollars to put into socking away food. Maybe all you got is what you can work paycheck to paycheck, don't have but five bucks left at the end of the week, and buy three spare cans of beans to stick in the pantry. But if you got a neighbor that runs an orchard, I bet you he'd be willing to trade some apples to you, and you can take them apples and dry them. You can make some cider with them. You can make some vinegar with them. And when life gets really rough, He'll depend on you to be part of the team to keep things going. You can depend on him to be part of the team to keep you going. All because you took the trouble to make him a neighbor and not the guy living next door. Any of you all old enough to remember neighbors? People sat on the porch, you walked by and said hi? Shot the breeze a little bit with them now and then? Folks looked out for you? Your folks like them. Your folks like that old couple enough to make you go over and cut their lawn. You never did quite figure out why. Well, let's just be a neighborly. I got some friends that come out here and their youngins come by. and They helped me shovel up seven or eight tons of manure last week, which was a pretty handy thing. But I remember when that was just someone that I knew and not a, a neighbor. And now as kids come by, they like to go shooting. And I ain't got no kids hanging around. I love taking kids shooting. So I got some kids to take shooting. And they help me shovel the manure too. Working as a community, getting to know each other. We can depend on each other. Those folks live about eight miles down the road now. Those kids know they're going to load up their bikes and beat feet and head to my place if anything happens in town. Cause they know they can depend on me to look out for them and I, I can depend on them to help me run the place and the folks are in good agreement with that and folks will be coming with them if they can why? because I took the time to make them friends instead of acquaintances you sit back and you think about what friends you really have you think about what we talk about apple appleseed a few times How many friends can you get to come out to you help you out at 2 o'clock on a Sunday morning when the regulars are coming? How many friends can you get a hold of? Remember we talked about that little exercise at the apple seed? Get on your cell phone. Call everybody up. How many of them are going to come down and help you? Well, I tell you, if you don't spend some time with them, give them the idea that you think they're important and make yourself important to them, you ain't going to have many people to come by at all. So before it all falls in the stew pot, it would behoove you to sit down with your next-door neighbor and turn him into a neighbor, and you be a neighbor. Look out for each other. Take care of each other. Get to know that guy next door. Get to know his wife. Get to know his kids. That way, when it gets ugly, you got a friend, and he's defending one side of your property. That takes a little bit of burden off of you. And between the two families, you just might be able to keep a place secure enough and calm enough that you can put in a garden and get in a crop of potatoes and something to get you by the year. A well-oiled people machine. We don't want to survive. We want to prosper. And we want to prosper as a civilization with all of the good things that that holds. All of the good things that it holds. We're going to look out for each other. We're going to teach each other's kids. We're going to teach each other. We're going to prop each other up when times are tough. And we're going to dance together and have fun when times are not quite so bad. You want to keep civilization going. eke out a living. Put together your well-oiled survival machine. You figured out you got three tons of dried wheat down in the basement? Okay. What are you going to do with it? You going to sit there and try and live on dried wheat and powdered milk for the next five years? You might be able to do it, but that ain't no kind of living. You swap some of that wheat with your neighbor for some meat, or some vegetables. Maybe you swap out some of that powdered milk with him. You look out for each other. Care of each other. Put it together. Take your skills. Share your skills. Share your belongings. And you still have to decide what you're going to do with that stranger coming down the road. Now if he comes down the road he's got a AR and looking kind of ill-tempered, he's got four of his buds with him and no women and kids, you might get the idea that it's not a friendly guy. And I don't know who you are. Maybe you're a regular Latter-day Alvin York. But I don't think you want to sit down and take on a group of people. But if you got neighbors, you can dial up on a field phone and come help you out. And maybe if it's a woman and a couple of kids and a daddy walking down the road, got their last two meals and their sleeping bags hanging on a bicycle, walking their way down there, well, one of you can go down to the gate and talk with them a bit. Somebody else can keep an eye on them and make sure they ain't bait for a trap. And if you've prepared well and produced well, you can give those people a meal and send them on down the road not feeling the least bit guilty. I don't know about you, but I was raised to have a little something called Christian Charity, where you look out for your brother, look out for your fellow man. I might not always be the most personable guy you ever ran into out on the range, but I don't go out of my way to hurt or bother anybody, and I wouldn't let anybody starve. Or go without a drink. Not a stranger walking down my road or the guy who lived next door that wouldn't give me the time of day. Doesn't mean you need to take them in and support them for the rest of their lives. Give them a meal. Send them on down the road. Work with your neighbors. Both of you pony up a little bit to give away to take care of them what ain't in such good shape as you are. I ain't saying you got to give them shirt off your back. I ain't saying you got to put them up and move them into your house. Give them a meal. Give them some water. Send them on down the road if you need to. And maybe you need some extra labor and you're producing well. Say, well, tell you what, y'all come out here and work on my farm for the next couple of months, and I'll make sure that you get fed for the next six. And you just found some more friends. Somebody else is set up in your well people, machinery. You might have half a dozen people living in your barn, helping you take care of that little community out there, taking care of those people who wander by, because you never know what that person walking down the street has to offer. To me, I'd be perfectly happy if he just offered me a peaceful day and didn't cause me any grief or bother my family. He may have a lot more to offer than that. That guy you just turned away at gunpoint, turned out he knew how to rebuild the world. Now he's living down in my place. It kind of makes things rough for you, but you didn't prepare to take care of anybody beside yourself. And you need to. Anybody else got any interesting ideas they'd like to contribute to this, dial on in at 347-308-8790. Again, 347-308-8790. Put you at the head of the line because I'm getting tired of talking to myself out here on this blog talk machine. I'd like to have somebody chat with me and help converse. Hang fire, why don't you give us a dial in let us know what you've been doing how your machine's working, what skills you've picked up. Not too many people in the chat tonight either. I hate to see that happen. Scout wasn't able to get out and send out the email and advertise a good show. He will be here a little later on, and we'll plug him in when he shows up. So you've got your preps. You've got neighbors from six houses around you within a quarter of a mile. You're looking out for each other. You're tending a couple of cows, maybe a half dozen goats, a couple dozen chickens. What are you doing with your kids? You all thought about maybe you need to sit down and teach those kids some things? Just because the bottom fell out of the world doesn't mean they ain't going to grow up what have you done to provide for those kids? They're going to outgrow those clothes. And I don't think you keep in 12 years of different size clothes laying around and take care of them. Swap off with the neighbor's kids a couple years older maybe? Maybe. You're going to have to educate them children. You're going to have to educate them. They're going to have to learn at least the simple math of survival. And it would certainly help if they could learn what civilization was and help you try to maintain one. And that takes more than just reading, writing, and arithmetic. Are you prepared to sit down with those half-dozen kids and hold school every day? You're going to need to have all day. And some of the things you'll be teaching will be a little more practical. But believe it or not, you need to sit down with them and you need to teach them reading and writing and arithmetic and English literature, the geometry of everyday life so they know how to square up a building when they're doing it. You can't neglect those minds. Those young minds need to be educated and you need to prepare for it. Maybe you're homeschooling already and that's a good thing. Are you sharing those homeschooling duties with your neighbor? The Neighbor sharing with you. Lots of homeschoolers do. One of them gets real smart on one thing, one gets real smart on another, and they swap off what they can do. And the kids get a better education for it, a little socialization that is sometimes lacking in homeschooling. If we have a collapse, it's all going to be homeschooling. prepared for that? Are you prepared to teach your children? What have you done to prepare yourself for it? What survival arts can you teach them? If you ever had to build a house, you know you're going to need some geometry, even just to keep it square. Can you teach them that much? Better be able to. Might help if you could teach them how to run a little sawmill, too. That takes calculation and skill a little bit of brains, a little bit of safety. You need to be able to teach those skills. And you need to teach all the things that little kids need. And they need to learn the arts. That doesn't mean that you need to sit there discussing Leonardo da Vinci paintings with them. It means you need to discuss with them entertainment things. Things will expand their mind. Things will make them want to press on and get bigger and better. So they're not just getting by. Ella got me a caller here. Who do I have online here? Hey there, Sam. I want oh, to okay. uh on. <laughs> I wanna
0: thank you for uh for last week and this week, uh I'll let folks know that <clears throat> Uh, Last week I had uh, all the pipes freeze and break uh, right before the show in my dad's house and I had to fix them. And uh, I got stuck out in the field today on a uh, uh, combat tracking course. And thank goodness uh, we've got Sam uh, helping out here because he managed to fill in both days. And Sam, thank you very much. I sure appreciate it.
2: Uh, thank you for the opportunity.
0: Well, I've just now, I just now rushed in. I just now called in, so I don't want to. If you got something you're in the middle of, go ahead and, and keep going, and just uh, and I'll just uh, jump in uh, when there's time. Well, we've
2: been talking about putting together the pieces of our survival machine, building community, learning to trust and depend on the people that live next door, to make them our neighbors not just the people who live next door, specialize in our skills to institute commerce between us, swapping labor and goods for things that one or the other may do better. And I brought up the idea that we need to be able to teach our children. Simply because the bottom fell out of the world doesn't mean they're not going to grow up and aren't going to need to know things. And I told them they need to teach their children the arts, and by that, I didn't mean that they needed to learn how to appreciate Leonardo da Vinci paintings. <laughs> <Or laughs> Which well, is good. The There's nothing wrong with that. But you're right. We're the the American public has
0: lost the ability to do a lot of things. They've, they've lost the ability to... Uh, they've lost a lot of skills that they used to have. Uh, just just things that are that father's, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers, things that they knew, they knew how to do because they'd done them when they grew up. Things like, heck, uh, even just like building a fire. Uh, you know, I I, <laughs> I, I I hang out with uh, different people all the time and I'll watch people try to start a fire. And I'm talking about using paper and, and lighter fluid and everything else, and they still can't do it. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you know uh, being able to... Uh, know how to a garden or know how to uh, uh, to clean a rabbit uh, to prepare it I mean these are things that people just don't do anymore Uh, and they don't because they don't do them they don't teach their children (coughs) and and our children are not for that they're our, our our country our culture is not better for that. We're not better for for not knowing how to make soap, not knowing how to sew, or uh, uh, or any of these other things.
2: Uh, we're just not better for it. You know, uh, folks need to know how to entertain themselves too. There's a a, a magic in written word that people don't always appreciate. And it builds creativity. And people that can play a banjo and sing and make each other happy when they've had a kind of crappy day for the hard work. Got a lot of tasks done together and have a good feed, and re-lubricate that, that people machine, get off each right. other's people nerves and they, sing and dance. Yeah.
0: For them to be happy... They have to have either uh, cable TV or uh, they have to have their computer or their whatever el- electrical device that they have to be plugged into, and they have to. They, I, I see that all the time. I mean, I see that all the time. Even with people camping out, they say, "Well, I've got to go into town because I've got to uh, plug back in." I understand <laughs> that. I understand having to, you know, to do stuff for work or something like that. But you're right, I mean uh, it seems like a lot of times folks have lost even the ability to to interact with each other on you know on a human level to sit around and have a conversation without uh without having it electronically you know and uh and we are we are hurting in that way, and I wish that more people would uh would unplug and uh and try and interact with each other, especially in their own families, because that's the only way you're gonna to get your your immediate family that's the only way you're going to establish a good uh solid relationship with them We have a uh well for for about 10, ten fifteen years we didn't have a TV, uh even in the living room we just had one t v in the bedroom and uh and if if we were going to watch TV, we all went into the bedroom and uh, watch TV together as a family. Because we didn't want—I didn't want the kids uh, to just plant themselves in front of the TV and, and, and grow up watching the filth that's on TV now. So instead, we had them all read. We got them all, you know, interested in reading. It didn't—it didn't—it wasn't an immediate uh love for everybody, but after a few years you know they uh they rolled into it and uh and then we would just go to the library uh probably two or three times a month, and the kids would uh, check out books and they'd end up getting you know, we'd end up getting uh twenty five thirty five forty five books you know at a time for the family and uh and they read and because of that. They make much better grades, and they don't—they're uh, they, not uh, uh, the slaves of television and electronics. I'm not saying it's bad because I, I think uh, a, a lot of the younger generation now—they have to uh, be—they uh, have to be fluent in technology. But at the same time, you don't have to give up uh, reading and learning how to talk to each other either. We would make sure that we have our dinners, uh, you know, together at the dinner table. Uh, during dinner time, we don't answer any phones, we don't make any calls, and uh, and we talk to each other. And uh, I think that a lot of a lot of families don't do that. A lot of a lot of people don't do that. It used to be when when I was a kid, and I'm sure it was the same way with you, because you and I have talked about this before, Sam, that uh, you, when you lived in, like, in a town or even rurally, you knew your neighbors and you, you interacted with them uh, when your neighbor was going to do some project. You just naturally assumed... That you were going to help, and they kind of made the same assumption. If they were going to put a new uh, another roof on their house or something, they just kind of assumed that
2: that you were going to help, and you did. Because you show up on Saturday morning with your ladder and your hammer and go to work. That's it. Because <laughs> at uh,
0: at some point down the road, you're going to need your roof repaired, or you're going to need uh, uh, your barn. Uh, set up. And they're going to help. Not because it's what they love to do, but uh, but because the community is supposed to work together uh, to help each other. And you interact that way and you form stronger bonds with your neighbors. And when you do that, your neighbors, uh, and, and this is true in the city too, you know, your neighbors know that you... That you are or you know them, you talk to them, they want to be better people because not just because of their of their own values and morals, but because they want to be good neighbors they they know they want to be uh they want to be part of a good community, and uh, you know we don't do that anymore everybody's locked up tight inside their own house uh, and and there's no com- there's no connection to the community. The community is uh, uh, at least not in the regular community. Now there's a the online community. I, I don't know how real that is because that's all just uh, that's all just and, and
2: typing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember when the only reason we used to lock the car was keep the neighbor from dumping a wheelbarrow full of zucchini in there.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah
2: yeah exactly
0: yeah you uh, you know for hell for 40 years uh, it was all it was the rule in our house that uh, that you keep the key uh, on the floorboard of the car of whatever car it was it was unlocked and the key was on the floorboard so that if somebody needed to use it they could come and get it and use it but uh I guess in the last uh you know, last fifteen years or so it, it has changed and now the doors are locked and the keys not in the vehicle but you know, that's just the way I I, I and I understand it. I just don't like the change. I understand that nobody wants their car stolen, but uh, I hate that it that that's that's what we've uh degraded, descended to.
2: Yeah. Uh, my neighbors and I, uh, we don't leave our house unlocked anymore, but we've each got keys to each other's house and uh, know our way around there. And If I needed something bad and I knew he had it, I could go borrow it, and he wouldn't be bothered in the least. He'd expect me to come get it,
0: and I'd expect right. to replenish
2: whatever I borrowed too right. or right. take and back whatever piece of equipment in good, good condition.
0: Yeah, is as in, as in as good or better condition than what you found it. You know, if you borrow a lawnmower, you turn it back in, and it's got a full tank of gas, uh, the oil level is checked, and uh, the blades can sharpen it. And that's how you bring it back, you know. And uh, I do the same thing here. You know, my neighbors know that they can come and, and uh, you know, borrow any tools or equipment or machinery, and they just need to bring it back in.
2: Uh, you know, as in good or
0: or better condition, and
2: uh, and
0: uh, and it's the same with me. I can go and borrow their equipment, their stuff, because they know that I'll bring it back and it'll be in as good or better condition. And it, that still goes on in places, but uh, it's just not. Uh, we've been heading away from it, and we need to head toward it. We need to head toward that. The I mean, only way you're going to do that is by trying to uh, reestablish the community. You know, to try and, and and you have to build it from the from the base up now. You know, from the bottom up, because there's not there aren't established communities uh, like that in many locations. But, well, listen. Uh, did you ask folks uh, or
2: tell folks that they were welcome to uh, call in and uh, – and Oh, I surely did. Thanks there. Okay. Well, I good. gave them that number a couple of times, 347 They could dial in right now.
0: Okay. I just want to make sure people, wanted to, people knew that. Uh, I want to let folks know that uh, first off that we're uh, in the middle of a uh, – five-day combat uh, tracking course, a tactical tracking course, uh, that's hosted by our company, Battle Road USA. And uh, John Hurth was the owner of uh, Tier Group, uh, LLC, out of uh, Louisiana. And it's uh, five days of learning how to track, how to read signs that your quarry has left behind so that you are able to find, fix, and finish that quarry. And it's being taught, first of all, we're being taught to read sign and then uh, how to follow sign, interpret sign. And then uh, now we're starting to work on how to do that as a team, as a group together, uh, and to do it in a hostile environment, or what could possibly be a hostile environment.
1: Uh, and it's a
0: very interesting course, very it's, – uh, it's, there's a, a lot of information, it's going a lot better than I thought uh, it was going to be, and uh, the course is just fantastic. And we're probably going to offer this again. So make sure that uh, if, you, if you are interested in attending the course at a, in a future date, be sure and let me know. Drop me a line at rwva range scout, all lowercase, one word, at gmail.com. RWVA range Scout r a n g e s c o u t at gmail com, uh, and let me know that you're interested in, uh, in taking the course. We'll see if we can't uh, set up another group of ten folks to take the course together. We want, we we want ten folks that we have two track two team, uh, teams of uh, five because that's how many folks are in a tactical tracking team. So get get in touch with me and we'll uh, and we'll get another course. Uh, set up as soon as possible. And now we also have the Battle Road USA End of the World as We Know It Zombie Destruction Running Gun, <laughs> and that's a very long title, uh, just describing a, a four and a half mile looping trail with uh, between eight and ten shooting stations for rifle and pistol as well as obstacles in between each station. Now, this isn't because because we're on some kind of zombie craze or something like that. It's just because uh, over the years, I've worked with the prepping community and the Suffer Alliance folks and stuff like that. And these folks, uh, they like to get their gear and put together their gear and stuff and... uh, and at times I'll talk to them and they'll say, yeah, you know, if something were to happen, some man-made or natural uh, disaster or cessation of services, something like that, uh, and I had to fend for myself, I would uh, i would use this backpacker, backpack because it's a killer backpack. And I would use uh, this uh, water bottle. I'd carry my water in this way. I'd use this compass. I'd wear these boots. Uh, I'd use this rifle and I'd carry my... Ammunition and this, or do this do it this way, etc. And uh, I've asked him over the years. I say, well, okay. Uh, and when you have it all on, you know, does everything work right? And uh, <laughs> you know, can you move in it? And uh, a lot of folks say, well, you know, I've never really, I've never really put it all on at once. And uh, <laughs> that's why I tell him, I say, come on, man, you're telling me that that you bought a bunch of gear and you're going to wear it at the quote end of the world but you've never never put it on to see if it works right uh, or if it uh, if you can get to what you need to get in it or or if you can walk in it uh, you know without it chasing you or falling off etc nope well that's what the running gun is about it's a way to test yourself your gear and your skills, because uh, we can't supply any living zombies, uh, or I guess dead zombies. We can't supply any zombies to attack you. What we can do, though, is uh, is to heighten your uh, your pulse rate through physical exertion. We can get you uh, we can get your heart pumping and uh uh get you uh, get your pulse elevated through physical exertion and uh and that will uh that will help you see what it's like to shoot under those conditions and uh you can try out your skills and your stamina you know four and a half miles is not a long way to go but uh but it can certainly give you an idea of what it's like if you have to put all your gear on and you have to move through uh, uh, four and a half miles and you have to shoot at different stations with your rifle and your pistol. I mean, like I said, there's going to be uh, obstacles in between the shooting stations. Nothing that's designed to break you, you know. It's just... Uh, how your uh, uh how your gear is going to work while you're wearing it while you're moving up and down over uh over an obstacle or or how you're going to do when you're uh, you're crawling on your stomach uh to a certain area so that's going to be April 26 and you can go to our website at uh, www.battleroadusa.com and uh and take a look at it and then go ahead and get signed up for it. All right. Uh you'll get a meal and a t shirt with your uh with your entrance fee. And also if you uh if you have some shooting experience and uh, you would like to help us out then uh and work one of the stations during the uh the run and gun. You can send a uh, an email to Mark at BattleRoadUSA.com. That's M-A-R-K, M-A-R-K at BattleRoadUSA.com. Tell them that you would like to be a range safety officer for the event, and uh, then you can come on the Friday before the event. The event's going to be on Saturday, April 26, but you can come on Friday and run the course with the rest of the staff members and the RSOs. And Then your uh, your payment will be to work the next day. You'll be able to uh, run one, help us run one of the stations there, and then uh, that will be your will waive your entrance fee. <clears throat> all right. So go to uh, battleroadusa.com, check, on, click on the running gun, and then get signed up for that, or send uh, an email to market@battleroadusa.com and tell them you'd like as an RSO. All right uh we also have uh we have a lot of courses coming up during the uh the upcoming year now we're re we're re uh re-twisting up the calendar so if you go there and you don't see anything listed yet or if there's if all we have is a zombie running uh the zombie running unlisted don't don't worry because uh we're trying to put in a new calendar it's an interactive calendar that uh, has all the dates on there. Just keep checking back, and uh, we'll have the calendar up and running. Uh, Because we'll also be having uh, a precision rifle sniper course, and then we'll be running uh, the five-day squad schools. That's where we teach uh, folks that uh, maybe you don't have any military experience, but you'd like to learn how to work together uh, with your with your fellow group members as a and uh, it's five days of learning uh, patrol and maneuver, basic rifle marksmanship, uh, survival, evasion and escape, uh, building fires, shelters, uh, stuff like that. Uh, there's even a night uh, operation included. <coughs> and uh, uh, in addition to the uh, fighting shotguns, combat carbine and uh uh and combat pistol courses that we host and the concealed carry and uh, the basic programs that we host. All right, that's BattleRode.com. All right, let's uh let's talk real quick uh, about uh the last time that I was talking to you guys. I was talking to you about the uh the battles of uh Trenton and Princeton and and those are some of the most, uh, to me, I think, some of the most amazing uh, battles in during the history of the American Revolutionary War. It's a turning point where the 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 whole nation was pretty much assured that we we were done for. We were done. Washington had been forced out of New York, forced out uh, further and further west finally been forced to uh, push out of New Jersey and across to Delaware. And everyone thought for all intents and purposes, it was done. It was over. We were finished. The The idea of uh, our American Revolutionary War and freedom had been quashed. Congress, uh, uh, everyone thought it was done. Uh... One of Washington's close friends, his secretary, <coughs> wrote him a note uh, with the advice of, you know, please do something. Do something. Even if you fight a battle and you lose, at least it lets him know that, that we're still in the game. We're still in the war. It, it, but if we do nothing, it, everyone is going to drift away. And this was uh, This was at the end of almost all of the current uh, enlistments. Everybody's enlistments was, uh, were going to run out uh, at the end of December and the Army was going to dissolve. Uh, what was left of it because the Army had already uh, evaporated from the 30,000 uh, uh, in New York down to the simple thousand that Washington was commanding uh, after he crossed the Delaware. Then came the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Uh, Washington attacked Trenton on December 26th and uh, and captured and killed the complete garrison there of the uh, the Hessian soldiers. Marched them off, uh, captured all of their goods, marched them all off, uh, crossed back over the Delaware, then turned right around. And made another attack, where he fought the British, fought the, the British to a standstill there at Trenton. Fought them until dark, then at the Roost, that the camps were still occupied, and uh, with the British saying that uh, they would bag Washington in the morning, Washington and his men uh, slipped out in the middle of the night. Made an in run around the flank and attacked Princeton, and captured and killed the garrison there. And then went into their winter quarters. Both sides went into their winter quarters immediately after this, because once again, this is uh, this is uh, uh, from the January 25th until the 3rd of Jan. I mean uh, December 25th until the 3rd of January. Now the troops have gone into their winter quarters, and what happened now? What the battles fought after this were called the Forage Wars. Now, in order for an army to remain a, uh, a field during the American Revolutionary War, it had to be supplied. And when people think about things like uh, like war during the American Revolutionary War, uh, they don't think about supplies. As a matter of fact, nobody ever thinks about supplies when they're Thinking about war, when they're thinking, when they're watching a movie about the war or anything else, they don't think about the fact that it takes a tremendous amount of supplies uh, for to keep men in combat during the Vietnam War at the height of the war, when there were over uh, one million troops uh, involved in the uh, the Vietnam War and the conflict, there were never uh, more than 50,000 combat troops afoot in the country, right? So that gives you a bit of an idea there about what it takes. You've got uh, uh, 950,000 men uh, who are supporting the the other 50 who are actually fighting. It takes a great deal of supplies in order to keep an army in combat, to keep them fed, to keep the bullets going, to keep them in warm clothes, uh, to keep their fires burning, food on the table. And and unlike current day, you know, where you have, uh, uh, you, you know, you've, you've got lots of factories running and... Uh, and you have the army putting out bids to different companies to see which one they want to hire to provide all the supplies for the, uh, the folks that are in Iraq or wherever they are. Unlike uh, that, which is now, which is uh, if you don't have uh, you don't have any uh, problem finding a company, you just have to find the one that's uh, you know willing to to give you the goods at the lowest prices. Now, during the American Revolutionary War, uh, there weren't uh, thousands of companies that were uh, providing services that the government could take advantage of. Uh, In a lot of the areas, uh, especially there in uh, New Jersey
2: during this point,
0: it was a fairly rural area. So how are you going to get the supplies that you need for your army? Uh, and it was a pretty good it was a pretty long way from uh for that time period a pretty long way from the coast from the ports where they would receive goods that might be shipped from uh England in order to supply the troops uh all the way to uh western New jersey all the way to the like to, to the delaware river it's a it's a pretty a uh, pretty great distance uh much too far. For them to receive all of their goods in that fashion. So what they were doing was foraging for their for their supplies. And when I say foraging,
1: uh,
0: you know, you think about when we when we talk about foragers, do you think about somebody going out uh, into the countryside, you know, with a cloth or a hemp bag and uh, and picking dandelions and pine cones and you know stuff like that, so that they can use them for for they eat, or in in uh, their homemade elixirs, or something like that. Uh, what what these guys had to do was well, they had to send out uh, uh, thirty or forty wagons, you know, at a time to go out and get hay for their horses, because the army moved uh, by virtue of horses. The horses had to carry the troops. Uh, they had to uh, the The supplies and stuff for the troops they had to pull the wagons uh you know they had to they had to be fed every single day, whether they were in combat or not, even though they're in Windsor quarters, the horses still had to be fed and uh so they would have to send out uh soldiers with uh wagons to go and uh, get hay, and some of the hay could be cut. Uh, I mean, some of the forage could be cut from, uh, from different things that were still standing. But in the wintertime, there is nothing, to, uh, there's nothing growing. There's nothing that, uh, that you can go out and harvest. That means they had to go to the, all of the different farms along the way and take the forage from the farms. That means they had to pull up to the barns and say, all right, we're going to take uh, half of the hay that you have in your barn and the farmers would say oh that's crazy i can't how am i going to feed my my cows through the winter and they'd say well you know that's not our problem uh we're just going to take this and we're gonna use it to feed our horses and our cows and stuff like that and they would not only were they taking the hay they were taking all of the stuff that they needed uh, the the army of uh uh of uh Three or four thousand uh, men at different places around there, if you think about three or four thousand men, how many cows do you think that they can eat every day? Probably about uh, eight or ten cows uh, to they could actually uh, uh, consume uh, every day. So that's the other thing. They were out uh, harvesting uh, livestock. They would just take it. They would take the livestock, they would, uh, they would go through they go in the barn and they would uh, rummage into the barn or through the root cellar, and they would take uh, uh, 200 pounds of of the farm's uh, 400 pounds of potatoes. And uh, they just did this all through the countryside. During this time that New Jersey was being occupied by the British, once they had pushed the uh, colonial forces out, uh, things started to go bad because of, even though a great deal of the folks in New York and New Jersey were loyalists, I mean they were they were pro-British uh, government. Even though a great deal of them,
1: uh, even a majority
0: in uh, many areas, were loyalists, they were being. The uh, British soldiers had begun to mistreat them, and by that I mean that they were uh, they were taking more uh, on these foraging uh, runs. They were taking more than they were supposed to. Uh, they were pillaging from the uh, the colonists, from the locals. That means they weren't just taking. They may not just be taking the uh, uh, the Half of the food uh, that the farmers had, and in many cases they took all of the food, and then they also took all of their, uh, all of their linens, all of their clothes, all of their plates and dishes. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, beatings and murders and rapes of the colonists of the locals by the British troops, and I'll tell you there is nothing that. Uh, that will change the loyalty of a group of folks or, or a, even a whole town, then if somebody comes in and beats or burns the home or rapes the wife and daughters of one of your neighbors, then that will change the whole attitude of that community and it did over and over again, because this wasn't happening in just a few places. this was happening in a great number of places the british the occupying soldiers were not treating the uh, the colonists as brethren uh, as English citizens. they were treating them as uh, uh, as a conquered people uh, as uh, they conquered strange people. And this was turning the attitudes and the loyalties of the folks in New Jersey uh completely around. Now, during this same time the the uh the soldiers, the militia, the colon the colonial soldiers who were in their winter encampments too. Uh, and let me just let me let me run this more in a uh, a timeline for you. Uh back in August of uh, 1776 when the uh the New York campaign began. Uh Washington and the Continental Army fought to defend New York, which was hopeless because New York was an island. And and unless you controlled the sea, uh, then you didn't control the island because whoever controlled the sea, the water around the island, controlled the island. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Washington did try to, he tried to defend it because that's what Congress wanted him to do. Now, most of New York was actually loyal. To uh, to England and to the King, but over the uh, in the course of about two months, uh, General Howe managed to defeat Washington's forces and then he gained control of New York and he pushed Washington uh, out of New York into New Jersey. Uh, the fighting continued, and Howe chased Washington all south all the way to Philadelphia. And then Washington retreated across the delaware uh into Pennsylvania, which was considered the uh it was considered out west pennsylvania and uh And we know that once he crossed the river, you know he went uh, uh almost hundred miles uh down each direction and uh of the river and took all of the boats that were available to keep the uh to keep house forces from following. And then Hal uh, went to winter quarters, and uh, and they had established a uh, like a network of outposts. One of the outposts was Trenton. Uh, there was another one, Princeton, and that's where the the battles of Trenton and Princeton were fought and came in. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> uh, once he had once he had beaten. Uh, Uh, House Forces, Uh, Washington established headquarters then for the winter at Morristown. And uh, uh, he established forward outposts to the east and to the south of the uh, the Watchtongue Mountains. And uh, uh, then over the course of January and February, the Continental Army actually kept shrinking, you know, like I said, the enlistments were up, and, uh, and folks were leaving, it was winter, uh, and the, the incentives that Washington had ordered, had offered many of the men, uh, uh, to keep them in long enough to fight the battles of Trenton and Princeton, those ran out too, and, uh, uh, and, so the the Continental Army was shrinking down
2: uh,
0: from the 3,000 to, uh, to almost at 2,000. However, because of the events in New Jersey, because of the way that uh, the folks there had been treated, and because of the fact that Washington had won victories against not just the British but against the uh, the Hessians too, the uh, the folks in New Jersey, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, they began enlisting into the militias, and this played a, really a significant factor in the battles that were fought that winter. Now, the British army was initially deployed from post uh, uh, as far north as uh, Hackensack, all the way to New Brunswick. The British garrisons, numbering about 10,000, was concentrated between New Brunswick and Amboy. And there was a, also a sizable contingent further, further north, from uh, Elizabethtown to uh, Paulus Hook. The militia pressure in January, uh, these were the, the New Jersey... Uh, New York and Pennsylvania militia members that, uh, that were beginning uh, to associate with Washington's Continental Forces, uh, caused General Cornwallis to withdraw most of the northern troops uh, back and pull them back to the shores of the Hudson River. The resulting concentration of troops overflowed the available housing there, which uh, had been entirely abandoned by the residents. Some of the troops were even, even living on ships uh, anchored nearby. The cramped quarters, uh, as we know all throughout history, when you have a ton of folks pressed in together, and uh, they're not uh, they're not following the, the perfect hygiene. Even if they are, uh, you know, winter was always a time for uh, the flu and uh, other diseases having all of these troops cramped in together in housing uh, greatly increased the camp-related illnesses uh, throughout the winter and the previous defeats that they had suffered by the Continental and by the Militia Forces, that coupled with the, the, the camp illnesses really were doing a number on the British morale. The area, plus the area that they were living in, had already... Uh, been uh, uh the supplies and stuff had already been taken by the colonial, the colonial forces when they came through uh when they were retreating, so there wasn't really any provisions in the area, and uh, the british soldiers were were living basically on rations uh, that were being shipped to the area all the way from England, stuff like salt pork and stuff like that. But the uh, the horses and oxen, the things that they used to uh, to pull the wagons to go and get supplies and stuff, they required fresh hay. I mean, like I said earlier, it's, you can't just park these beasts of burden in the barn and uh, and until you need them, they're going to have to be fed every day, no matter if they're doing nothing or they're doing something. And they had to keep them. Constantly working in order to keep the supplies flowing. You, know, you had to, the in order for you to have any food at all, admit you had to take a uh, horse and wagon and go and get it, either from the ports, which may be hundreds of miles away, and bring it back, or you'd have to go out to the local uh, communities and uh, and either have it donated to you, maybe from lawless, or confiscated and put it in the wagon and bring it back. In order for you to have any supplies, you had to have horses pulling carts and those horses had to eat and you had to go and get fresh hay, fresh clean hay for those horses to eat. Earlier in uh, the winter of 1776, uh, Washington had sent a detachment of troops to systematically remove uh, any remaining provisions and livestock that the British conveniently access. Now, this sounds like it wasn't any better than what we, what the British were doing, and, and it really it wasn't, because the folks were when they had their goods uh, uh, taken from them, they were issued uh, script that was uh, that was the currency that Congress was issuing. They were issued scripts or a note uh, that the government was going to pay for them, but the government didn't have any money. So folks were having their goods uh, 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 confiscated, uh, but they were being given worthless paper in most cases for it. So they weren't happy about that, (laughs) but the militia wasn't mistreating them either. Uh, Cornwallis began doing the same thing right about the same time in January. He started sending out small forging uh, and raiding parties in uh, January, in early January. However, when he started sending out these small parties, they started getting met by much larger formations of American militia. So he might send out uh, uh, 10 wagons Uh, with uh, 60 soldiers, and when those uh, 10 wagons and 60 soldiers went out, they would be met by uh, 300 to 400 militia, and uh, they would have some of their men killed and the rest would be captured. Their wagons and horses and any goods that they had already uh, picked up would be captured. And the... uh, these battles began to lead to pretty significant casualties. Now, you, know, you, don't, you don't think about this uh, like uh, the Battle of uh, Brooklyn or anything like that, where you have two armies which set out specifically to engage one another uh, on the field of battle, but these were really not that different from that. You had one group uh, that's uh, setting out to go and get supplies from the countryside, and another group. ...that's going out because uh, they're going to stop them. And in a way, I think this was pretty smart... ...because uh, a lot of times the the, uh, British soldiers were going out... ...and on their raiding parties... ...and they were raiding and taking stuff from the local inhabitants... ...which made the local inhabitants mad at the British. And then the Americans were attacking those convoys and taking all the goods. So they benefited from the goods. They weren't getting the uh, the anger of the locals because they didn't go and steal it from the locals. They, the British soldiers did. And because they took those things from the British soldiers, the British soldiers still needed those goods and supplies. So the they would have to send out more parties, more and larger and uh, parties, more often to try and get more stuff. And the American militia would send out larger groups in order to fight them and confiscate the stuff that they were, that the British soldiers were seizing from the local population. All right? Uh, So uh, in an early example of this, We've got Brigadier General Philemon uh, Dixon. He got together a group of about 450 militia, and he drove off a British foraging expedition uh, in what's called the Battle of Millstone. This was on January 20th. Now, Washington gave his commanders pretty wide latitude in how to act and how to meet this threat. And his commands basically his commands were to constantly harass the enemy and that they should be aggressive in their tactics, and that gives some pretty wide latitude. The early successes that the American uh, militia forces had uh really depended on the successful intelligence that they were receiving from the local communities. uh One British commander reported uh being met with force notwithstanding the orders we were given, but a few hours before the troops moved, right. So so what he's saying is that uh, they were attacked and met with force before they even went out to do what they were supposed to do. So somehow, somebody knew and somebody relayed the information to the militia. The militia got the information in time to muster their forces and attack the British before they were even out doing what they were trying to do. So... And like I said, a lot of this was due in fact that the British soldiers had made the local populations so angry with them that their loyalties, which uh, in many cases may have been split, uh, it, it caused a great deal of the communities to turn their backs on the British forces, and the communities began to serve the militia. Uh even the supply convoys uh, brings provisions from outside the state to places like the the large garrison they had at New Brunswick, were not immune to the American attacks, uh, where the Raritan River and the roads from Perth and Amboy uh, came together. There, it offered uh, perfect opportunities for for sniping and raiding and, and attacks on the supplies of the British. These difficulties that uh, the British commanders were facing uh, caused them to change their tactics. And so they began trying to to lure the militia units into traps uh, where they could have the upper hand. They would try and set it up so that they would try and get the militia units to attack a certain area, but they would have uh, two to three to four times the number uh, British forces there waiting for them. And, uh, but this wasn't that successful because uh, like I said before, in, in order for you to do something like this, you need to, you would need to be a secret. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't go into a town somewhere or down a, a, a certain road and try and say, okay, we're bringing these supplies in, uh, to such and such a place on such and such a date, and we only have uh, 200 soldiers to guard it, uh, so let's go, men. You can't do that if the local population says, uh, look, we saw that they didn't have that much uh, supplies at all, but they did indeed. In fact, they didn't have 200 soldiers, they had uh, 800. Uh, And they let everybody else know about that, because intelligence is a key uh, to, to waging and winning uh, any type of a partisan uh war <clears throat> also uh, the continental commanders uh, had a great deal more experience and knowledge of uh the local geography and the terrain and uh and they used their superior knowledge uh to set even even more elaborate traps to trap the British soldiers. Now, in one encounter uh, in late February, uh, this is probably about 30 days after the really the, the port wars started going, uh, British Colonel Charles Mahood uh, thought that he had flanked a party of New Jersey militia. Now, he suddenly found out that uh, his advance force was flanked by another larger force. As they were driven back toward Amboy, more and more Americans appeared, uh, so Mahood had set out to to uh, to make a surprise attack uh, on the New Jersey militia. So, but what he didn't realize is that they had actually turned the tables on the British Mahood into the trap of their own making. Uh, ultimately, uh, Mahood. Uh, received about a uh, hundred casualties. The the elite grenadiers of the 42nd Foot. Uh, this was part of uh, Mahood's uh, vanguard there of his unit. Uh, were badly mauled in the encounter. A British force of two thousand soldiers were repulsed by Maxwell in another very well organized attack. Just a few weeks later, a force of two thousand. British soldiers, who were met and repulsed because the uh, the Continentals and the local militia had better intelligence and a superior knowledge of the geography of the terrain in the area. Now the ongoing tensions, the forage wars, and let me tell you too that forage wars is not something that uh, that you the, the term forage wars is not something that you're going to hear. Uh, in a lot of places, uh, until after the time period when David Hackett Fisher wrote his book, because uh, Dr. Fisher is the one who actually coined the term "the Forage Wars." Right? Anyway, the Forage Wars were taking their toll on the on the British. Uh, one of the uh, one of the captains of the of the Hessians. Uh, troops. He was one of the Jaegers, which is a, a light infantry. The Jaegers were the, the guys that were like the uh, like, almost kind of like the, the minute men were in the militia. Uh, and these were the guys who were, who were pretty much usually on the, the front lines and good shots and very uh, fast, alert, mobile troops. He was a captain of uh, the Jaeger. Anyway, he he thought that uh, he had written in his journal, the men have to stay dressed day and night, the horses have to stay constantly saddled, and the army uh, is being gradually destroyed through this foraging. Now, some of the forage that uh, the British Army needed was provided uh, via New York, but this was it, it was never sufficient for the army's needs, just like uh, if you tried to take gasoline. Uh, from uh, you know one end of the state to the other, and you didn't have, and there were any gas stations. So as you're driving further and further, you keep having to pump that gas just from the back of a truck uh, into the engine, you know, into the gas tank. So eventually, when you get to where you're going, you only have uh, a little bit left because you had to pump it all into the the truck's engine to get there. It flies from New York out to the uh, the western uh, to the garrisons there in New Jersey, <clears throat> in order for you to to take a wagon load of hay from New York to New Jersey, you had to feed those horses along the way and and the wagons didn't carry like uh you know a hundred bales of hay uh, and a good deal of the hay would be eaten by the time you got to the garrison so even though even though you had hay that was being provided via New York. It that was never enough for the army's needs. So the uh, uh the army was forced to uh to get their supplies through raiding parties and to have a good deal of it uh shipped in uh, all the way from Europe. Uh and to me, you know that that's just that's kind of a crazy thing, right? To to try and have hay brought in by ship—it's a huge cost uh, in uh, in money and in uh, in space that could be better used to ship other things and material and shipping time. All right, so over the course of that winter, uh, Doctor Fisher has uh, compiled a list of battles. He he himself describes it as an incomplete list, uh, consisting of 58 separate actions that occurred between uh, January 4th, which is the end of uh, uh, the Second Battle of Trenton and the capturing of Princeton, and March 21st, 1777. That's uh, January 4th to March 21st. So that's... uh, roughly two and a half months. There were 58 different actions, 58 different engagements that occurred in that period. But like I said, Dr. Fisher uh, himself is one of the few people that has even that has ever attempted to com- to compile this listing. And I'd like to get him to to come on the radio show and talk about this because I think the Forage Wars are uh, are very fascinating. Uh, regardless, he says that this that the 58 actions is an incomplete list. The British. And the Germans kept much better track of their casualties during this time period than the uh, than the colonial army and the militia did. You know, they had a, a much better record keeping system, and they were required uh, to keep very good records and then to submit them, uh, you know, to their commanders uh, back in Europe. So they would have to make sure that they made up detailed, very detailed records, and then. Uh, and then bubble them up and ship them to Europe. So we have really good records of the casualties from the British and the German side. We have, we don't have as good of records from the colonial and militia sides because uh, the militia didn't have a good record-keeping system and as colonial forces. They had a very rudimentary uh, administrative Uh, systems. Uh, The documented British and German casualties record more than uh, uh, 900 uh, British and German wounded or killed in action. and uh, uh, A number of these 58 actions that we have records on uh, actually don't include any casualty reports for the British or Germans, so we're we're not too sure if that is a total. Combined with the losses that the British received at Trenton and Princeton. Remember that uh, at uh, Trenton, Washington, Washington captured close to uh, 1,100 uh, Hessians and then uh, another three to 400 were captured at uh, Princeton. Uh, the British lost more men in New Jersey than they did during the whole for New York. Uh let's uh let's talk about some of these actions. <clears throat> uh okay. We've got action uh at Elizabethtown. Now at Elizabethtown uh on the fifth of January, this is uh just uh, a couple of days after the uh, capture of Princeton. Uh, A regiment of the Waldeck Infantry and uh, a couple of companies of the 71st Troop, of the 71st Foot, uh, uh, along with a troop of British light dragoons who had been stationed in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, uh, were ambushed by militia near the town. One trooper was killed. A second one was wounded. Now, the next day, about uh, 50 of the Waldeck Infantry... Uh, left town, the small escort of light grooms with instructions to uh, to clear the countryside there. So they were, once well, they left town, they were going to move through the countryside and clear it of any hostile forces. Uh, uh, this, uh, the uh, patrol was led by uh, uh, Captain Von Haack. And this large, uh, this is a pretty large, Patrol, because you've got fifty infantry uh, with, a, uh, with a though it's a small accompaniment, uh, They did have light dragoons with them. Uh, was attacked near Springfield, New Jersey, uh, near Springfield, by the New Jersey Militia. In Elizabeth Town, the soldiers heard distant gunfire. Then, uh, a couple of hours later, the uh, British horsemen came back without any of the foot soldiers. Uh, eight or ten of the the uh, uh, uh infantrymen were shot down during the engagement, and then the entire party were captured. Remember, there were 50 of them were sent out. Uh, eight or ten of them were shot, and then the, the, the rest were captured. Uh, they were ordered to pull back to Amboy. The garrison hurriedly packed up and left on the 7th of January. Now, as the troops evacuated Elizabethtown, the militia attacked the rear guard, and uh, and as the rear guard and the soldiers as uh, they began a very confused route, the Americans actually moved in very quickly, very tightly, and captured 100 uh, of the soldiers, including the baggage trains of the two regiments and all the food supplies. So. During this engagement uh, uh, outside Elizabethtown, once they had captured the militia uh, had captured uh that uh, light company of the Waldeckers and the, the you know, the dragoon, which were the horse uh, the uh the horse mounted infantry, when they made it back the uh the, the unit decided to pull out of it Elizabethtown to retreat out of it and during the retreat they lost another 100, all of their supplies, all of their food. Uh, on the 10th, this is uh, five days later, at Chatham. Uh, this is at uh, Connecticut Farms and uh, Bonhamtown, Town. Uh, on January 10th, 1777. Now, Colonels Charles Scott's Virginia Continentals captured 70 of the Highlanders together with their wagons at uh, Chatham, New Jersey. Scott's Brigade was uh, composed of the 4th, 5th, and 6th Virginia Regiments. Connecticut Farms, had uh, uh, on the 15th of January, you had 300 New Jersey militia commanded by Colonel Oliver Spencer attacked 100 German foragers. The Americans killed one enemy soldier and captured seventy more. The following day, on the 16th, uh, another group of 350 uh, American soldiers uh, attacked a large body of British foragers at uh, Bottomtown, New Jersey, killing 21 enemy soldiers and then uh, critically uh, or seriously uh, wounding another 40 more. Now we don't we don't have uh, we don't have any records uh for the Americans losses, but but they were not as high uh as the losses. Uh, then on the uh twentieth uh, of January, five days after that, uh, near Vans Nest Mill there were four hundred militia members and then fifty of the Pennsylvania Riflemen. Now, the Pennsylvania Riflemen; these are the westerners with the rifled muskets, the sharpshooters. There were 400 militia and 50 of the Pennsylvania Riflemen. They uh, they attacked across an icy stream, an icy stream in the middle of January. These guys attacked across it. They fought a pitched battle with 500. British regulars who had three cannons. The British lost 25 casualties, uh, 12 prisoners, 43 wagons, 104 horses, 115 head of cattle, and about 60 sheep. Uh, the American losses were reported at four or five men. Now, afterward, the British refused to believe that they had been beaten by a militia uh they, they would not admit that four hundred and fifty militiamen had attacked their five hundred regular British forces and beat them, but that's exactly what happened a couple of days later on the twenty third uh two British regiments were waylaid by uh uh general maxwell uh, American general Maxwell near woodbridge the uh two hundred uh New Jersey Continentals these weren't the militia, these were Continental soldiers from New Jersey uh, killed 7 and wounded 12 during this attack uh, and suffered only 2 men wounded at Drake's Farm on the 1st of February uh, 1777 uh, Brigadier General Sir William Erskine, 1st Baronet set up a a, uh, really a pretty clever trap he uh, sent a party of foragers to Drake's farm near Muchen. And when Scott's 5th Virginia tried to gobble up that small party, he rushed his large force into action. Uh, several battalions of grenadier, light infantry, the 42nd foot soldiers and Hessians uh, dashed into the battle, supported by eight artillery pieces. But Instead of fleeing, instead of taking off, the uh, Scots Virginia, his fifth Virginia, launched a vicious attack, a vicious counterattack, which momentarily broke uh, the Grenadier Battalion they were fighting. And then under intense cannon fire, the American attack was stopped. But the soldiers fought on tenaciously until they forced all of the uh, the. Uh, Grenadier battalions, the light infantry, and the Hessians forced them back toward Brunswick. Now, the American did lose 30 to 40 casualties, uh, but they killed uh, 36 British and wounded over 100 more. Uh, it showed the it showed the British that, despite what they thought was a really clever track and superior numbers, that uh, uh, that there, it, that was not going to that was not going to be all it took to beat the American forces. Uh, in addition, during during this engagement, uh, Lieutenant William Kelly of the Continentals uh, and six under six other uh, American soldiers had. Been, who had been wounded, and during a tactical uh, withdrawal, which is uh, which is another way to say uh, a retreat, you know, where a retreat has been ordered, uh, usually for some other reason than you're just than you were just getting your butt whipped. Uh, during a tactical withdrawal, these wounded men were left on the field. And the British soldiers who were so angry about their, their and frustrated about their attack, not beating the Americans. They, uh, they were witnessed, uh, beating, uh, and stabbing all of the American wounded prisoners to death. Uh, when the Americans ended up recovering the bodies, and the bodies were just just beaten into into pulp because the British stabbed them over and over with their bayonets, and then they just took their their the rifles and butt struck them until the bodies were completely mangled uh, and this infuriated the American soldiers now the, the general uh Stephen Continental, he sent several letters to, uh, General Erskine, but Erskine said, uh, he didn't have any responsibility for the incident, and he didn't think that it happened. Regardless, the Americans knew that it happened, and it's something that they kept with them, uh, during the next several engagements that they had with the British forces. On the 23rd of February, uh, 77, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mahood, Charles Mahud, uh, was sent with a reinforced brigade to destroy rebel forces, which he thought he could, any rebel forces that he would run into, basically. Now, he set out with a battalion of uh, light infantry, a battalion of grenadiers, plus the 3rd Brigade, uh, which consisted of the 10th foot, the 37th foot, the 38th foot, and the 52nd foot. That's four companies of uh, of infantry, which had recently been transferred to him from the Rhode Island garrisons. Uh, near Spanktown, which is now Rawway, New Jersey, Moffood found a group of militia herding some livestock, and uh, they were being uh, covered or, you know, watched over by a larger body of Americans waiting on a nearby hill. The British officers sent the uh, Grenadier Company the 42nd foot on a Mm -hmm. wide flanking maneuver to try and get over there and outflank the, uh, the American forces uh, that were on the Overwatch Hill. But just as the Grenadiers prepared to launch their assault, they were fired on from ambush. So the, the American forces apparently had either seen this or they, uh, as it was unfolding, they prepared an ambush for it, and they ambushed the flanking force that Mahood had sent. Uh, and killed uh, over 26 of the company that was trying to uh, outflank them at as, as the onset of the engagement. Right at that point, Maxwell sent his superior force forward to envelop Mahood's force. So uh, Maxwell's force was really larger than Mahood's, but Mahood didn't know this. He could not. He couldn't see Maxwell's force. All he could see was some of the uh uh some of the uh American forces that were on the hill uh on the other hill from the uh from the area where he had encountered the militia with the livestock but Maxwell had a larger force uh and he ended up uh attacking uh mahood's force. And the American force consists of the 1st, the 2nd, the 3rd, and the 4th New Jersey regiments, plus the 1st and 8th Pennsylvania reg- regiments and the German battalion, which was a battalion of uh, uh, German colonists. Mahood's prize men were, were being shot and hounded all the way back to Amboy, which they eventually reached 8 o'clock that night. Uh, He ended up losing five killed, nine wounded. Uh, The Americans claimed to have inflicted over 100 casualties, but Mahood only admitted losing 69 killed and uh, six uh, uh, missing men. And uh, for this, the Americans, during this engagement, the Americans lost five killed and nine wounded. Uh, And uh, apparently that they... They wrote that they killed Over a hundred of the British Uh During the During the Uh uh, The The American forage Wars Uh The British suffered constantly And uh they ended up being being forced to retreat from the New Jerseys and be uh, and locked up in uh, in New York for uh, f- until the uh, until the uh, the campaigns the summer campaigns of 77 began uh the it, it was turning out a great deal different than uh, than what they thought was going to happen during the during the campaigns <clears throat> uh all right. I'd like to remind you guys that, uh, just like uh, what Sam was saying in the beginning, that uh, uh, it's our duties to make sure that we are that we are working towards being able to take care of ourselves. It sounds kind of silly, right, that uh, that I should have to say that or to tell you that we should be working in that direction, that we should be trying to take care of ourselves. But that's indeed what we should be doing. We should be working toward trying to ensure that we are able to care for ourselves, no matter what, no matter if we have a uh, three days of ice, or uh, we have, uh, you know, the the end of the world uh, from uh, from who knows what, and anything in between, any natural or man-made disasters or cessations of service. I and mean, the only way we're going to do this is by beginning to work on it now, beginning to work on your own individual skills, beginning to work together as a community and And you need to ensure that you are starting your preparations now now we we try to remind you guys on a regular basis, and we have shows covering this shows on uh on uh water purification and uh, shelter and food, but we would like for you to make sure that you're trying to do some of this yourself, you're trying to teach yourself uh some of the things that we have forgotten as a nation. All right? Uh, All right. I think that's going to uh, to just about do it for this evening. I I would like to tell you guys that we have uh, uh, a gentleman coming uh, this next Thursday show and it may not be uh, i'm i don't think i'm going to be able to have it at the at the normal time which is uh 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, central standard time because uh next week's guest is going to be a gentleman that uh he goes by the name of Furfall uh, his name is Fernando and uh he has uh he's uh He's gotten kind of a name in the self-reliance and prepping communities because he has been one of the the really vocal people that was able to to watch what happened when Argentina recently uh, when the, the Argentina recently came apart at the seams, uh, which was a modern, uh, cultured community. That de-evolved and, uh, and turned uh, through financial losses uh, and collapsed, and the country uh, the country dissolved into shambles. And he was right there in the middle of it. And he's going to come on the program, and he's going to tell you guys what he saw, what he witnessed during the uh, the country's breakdown and what he thinks could be the important things that you may need to consider when you are thinking about preparing for uh, natural or man-made disasters, or especially some type of cessation of services situation, uh, like the country going broke, or like, uh, which, like what occurred earlier in the Great Depression. All right, I think that uh, he's uh, living in London now, which is six hours ahead. And I think that the show's going to end up being uh, uh, like from uh, three to three to five or four to six here, because that will be uh, to uh, ten to midnight there. Uh, but I'll be sure and uh, let you guys know with a, an email, letting you know the day before instead of the day of, because uh, uh, that way if you if you are able to listen uh, early, uh, somewhere where you're at work or home or anything. You'll be able to do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to thank you guys very much and I'll send out an email letting you know when the next show will be. And, uh, but it will be this next Thursday until then. I, I want to thank, uh, Sam D again for, uh, for pulling the show last week and this week out of the fire for me. Thank you, Sam. Thanks. And God bless you. And, uh, We'll see you guys this uh, next Thursday, uh, as soon as we get uh, fur fall uh, locked down. All right.